1: Hello, and welcome to a festive edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. We are here to talk about our favourite films of the year as well as some alternate festive favourites. I am Jake Cunningham, and joining me is Irene Musmechi.
2: Hello, Merry Christmas.
1: And Sam Howlett. Happy New Year. How are you all doing? Very well. Feeling
2: stressy and Christmassy.
3: Perfect. I'm not stressed, I'm very happy. Yeah. Very comfortable. You're full of the festive spirit. It's yeah, the kind of Baileys you're drinking. It is, yeah. yeah. I've had six today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um so what are we what are we watching? Normally we review what we've been watching. What will we be watching this Christmas?
3: Well, I think that the Christmasiest city in the world is New York. And film cinema seems to know this as well. You've got a lot of Christmas films set in New York, you've got Elf, Home Alone 2, although Home Alone 2 is now ruined by a cameo by <laughs> Donald Trump, mm-hmm. so it's unwatchable. But I'm going to pick um, a film that is set in New York, it's set in the Christmas season of New York, and that is uh, Mary Harron's adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis's masterpiece, American Psycho.
1: Great choice, and a great film. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's Christmassy. It is, it's, yeah. It's,
1: there's a Christmas party.
3: There's a Christmas party, there's mistletoe, there's snow. Everyone's wearing their big winter coats. A lot of scarves. A lot of red. A lot of red. A lot of red. Yeah, Yeah. very festive. Uh, Also, a lot of murder. But that's kind of like a side note.
2: Well, that could be an unexpected result of Christmas. Maybe some your family celebrations don't go the way they should.
1: That's a really nice one that the Bechdel test fest screened, kind of bending their own rules slightly, but just kind of showing how it's a film so totally about masculinity.
3: Yeah. Well, toxic. The most. The most toxic masculinity can get is American Psycho, and yet it's directed by a woman, which is great. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and Mary Heron should be doing more. Yeah, it's a real shame. She's so talented. I look forward to you showing that to your kind of grandparents. uh, Yeah,
3: when the whole family's around kids, toddlers, American Psycho. I mean, it's actually, I think I often forget that American Psycho has got at least like 40 minutes an hour before the first kill. So uh, for a while, you're not really sure what you're getting into. Mm. Does
2: it qualify as slow cinema then?
3: I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure. It's also got an incredible soundtrack, which I don't think qualifies as a slow cinema either.
4: Yeah.
1: That, Is this like... where you're going to take the podcast on a 40-minute tangent? Maybe about Genesis or... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Genesis. Collins? Do you like Hugh Lewis in the News, guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, talking about uh, Christmas films that perhaps take a while to get going before there are many, many murders, I enjoyed... Krampus for the first time mm. yesterday. Uh, and I, I think I'm going to put that on the shelf as a, a regular Christmas classic. I did watch it with uh, my girlfriend's parents who may be perhaps not into your postmodern comedy horrors as most people will be. And I think, because the the start of the film is very much in the vein of Home Alone kind of comedy, in that it's a lot of people and a lot of family members, and they don't quite get along, and there's this side of the family and that side of the family, and one's Democrat and one's Republican, and oh, the grandma's turned up and no one invited her, and it's this kind of comedy that maybe does go on a bit too long before the murders. But then the murders start happening and it's great and it's based on uh, Bavarian folklore about yeah. this uh, night version of Santa called Krampus who's pretty savage and he's got hooves and horns yeah. and a quite nightmarish gang of...
3: Evil elves? Yeah, mm. and
1: toys that eat children and it, it went yeah. to some places I wasn't expecting. And this is
3: a really dark film actually, yeah, Krampus. Yeah, a
1: lot, a lot of children to suffer quite terrible fates. And uh, I I really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, and it's directed by Michael Doherty, who made a film called Trick or Treat, which went straight to DVD in the UK, but it's really fun.
1: Well, it kind of opened up a new vein to me that I need to check out the other ones. There's like Better Watch Out and Silent Night, Deadly Night, which have got these great... There's so much Christmas potential.
2: (laughs) Silent Night, Deadly
3: Night, I believe, is the one where Santa kills someone with an icicle.
1: Brilliant. Rena, what are you watching?
2: When you sent me the task of thinking about Christmas films, I went very earnest because I absolutely love Christmas. And it's a time when I actually watch a lot of um, old classics. Uh, so I'll be re-watching A Matter of Life and Death, which is currently in cinemas as well. And uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I watch every year. And then there's a few kind of... Um, recent traditions that my family has started adopting because, as we know, Christmas is all about the family. Mm -hmm. So uh, ever since we got our first VHS player, which was probably in 1988, if I don't remember uh, wrong. Uh, we have had a uh, tape of The Godfather, dubbed mm-hmm. into Italian, uh, which is, is pulled out every Christmas and we rewatch it traditionally, everyone together after our six hour meal. Um, there is actually a Christmas scene in The Godfather. Uh, he gets shot on Christmas Eve, the dawn right. gets shot on Christmas Eve. Um, and so it's perfectly justifiable and justified as a choice. Most of us kind of sleep through it by that stage. But one amazing thing happened a couple of years ago when uh, I brought my then new boyfriend and now my husband uh, over to Italy who doesn't really speak a lot of Italian and had never seen The Godfather. And so I had to explain to my parents that we were going to go with a tradition, but this time we would watch the film on DVD in the original language uh, with Italian subtitles. And lo and behold, a Christmas miracle happened. My dad could actually quote along with the entire script <laughs> in Italian and did this kind of live dubbing thing going on. It was really quite experimental and wonderful. So yeah, I'll be rewatching The Godfather as usual uh, every year. Although I have just watched an extraordinary Christmas film, which is uh, John Huston's The Dead, um, which actually takes place, I think, on the 6th of January, Twelfth Night, which is the last day of Christmas. Right. And it's a fantastic adaptation of a short story by James Joyce. Um, it's the short story at the end of the Dubliners and really kind of gives the, the meaning of epiphany, uh, a whole new uh, sort of literary concept. And it's absolutely fantastic. It's got Angelica Houston in it, full of atmosphere, and uh, I would thoroughly recommend it. Irena,
1: keeping it in the family. This Christmas. Uh, you mentioned a matter of life and death uh, for listeners of this show do head over to our Twitter where you can actually win one of the very very lovely posters that have just gone out for the restored version of that film uh, those are really really nice so do make sure you check that out and see if you can win one that we've got available for you and uh, we must move on as it is the most wonderful time of the year, the time of the year when every culture article has to be condensed into a nice short list so everyone knows exactly what is right and what is wrong and what is best and what is worst. And uh, so we will start by actually spreading our wings outside of the pod booth and around into Curzon's cinemas and Cousins head office to talk to a number of different staff members all about their favourite films of the year.
3: Alright, right, so first up, uh, we've got Stephen Ryder, who works in Curzon Aldgate, and he's going to tell us about his favourite film of the year, which is A Ghost
5: Story. I think that what separated it from a lot of the other films for me was how uh, experimental it was with its structure um, and its pacing, because I think these days, with the overload of kind of very similar stuff we're getting in cinema, um, uh, although that varies in quality a lot, uh, this in particular, just from the first half an hour struck me as something that was going to be very very different um, it starts off incredibly slow um, I think within that first kind of half an hour you get uh, two or three shots that last um, a few minutes at a time where there's barely anything going on uh, you remember the, the, the scene where they're lying in bed together yeah. um, the scene where the the hot the, the bed after you know spoiler alert Casey Affleck's character dies but it is in the first twenty minutes of the movie and uh, and there's another one as well oh Rooney Morris the, the pie eating scene yeah uh, which has kind of come as a, a symbol of the movie I think the one that people keep returning to but yeah I mean it's a it's the pacing and the structure of it is is so um, experimental and, and it's a film like that's about time and about how time works uh, for human beings um, which is a kind of a, a very ambitious theme I think to undertake and they do that through the character of this of this ghost I think I've described it for as like instead of being a life story it's like an afterlife story about what happens after this this guy dies and and you know we get to explore his feelings in the afterlife his rejection of the afterlife his return to the kind of real world and um yeah and I think I think that Lowry's it's a really ambitious project for Lowry and it's it's a very challenging film and I think it's People have told me that they dislike it and I, I do totally understand that because it is a challenging film. But, um, but yeah, for me, it was just... I loved how it took a different path from a lot of things we're doing nowadays.
3: It's really interesting in terms of like marketing as well because the lead actor is not really on screen often.
5: Well, no. he Apparently, he is under the sheet, though. Right. Um, and I, I, I think... Uh, if that is Casey Affleck under that sheet, Mm. which I don't think, you know, we'll ever really know for sure, then it's, it's actually, I think a really good physical performance (laughs) from him. Like it's got, there's a lot of physicality going on under there, I think. And you really feel something, whether that's from the direction or from, from Casey himself, I don't know, but the limited amount of screen time that he does get, I think he does something with it. Yeah. I mean, he's coming off his Oscar win last year, obviously. And, uh, this is a... You know, he's worked with Lowry before on... Uh, remind me what the film was? Um, I, I think before? it was Ain't Them Body Saints. Ain't Them Body Saints, yeah. Saints, which I actually haven't seen yet. I should probably see that. And obviously Rooney Morrow and Casey Affleck worked together on that one. So uh, I think Lowry saw something in him for this role. And I think it works. I think he's a very quiet character. He's very subdued compared to Rooney Morrow, who's very kind of combative in the relationship. Right. She likes to, she likes to you know, call him out. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't seem to like to talk at all. And, uh, which is kind of... Ironic, I guess I've not thought about this before, but it's kind of ironic that when he's a ghost, he wants to express all these things now and he yeah. can't do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to the film. I mean, we've spoken about the fact that it's about time. Now in the movie, it's got this bridge in between with the yeah. Will Oldham doing the, the party going, uh, the party goer who rants um, and does his big speech, kind of expository speech, which some people have really hated. Mm. Um, I thought it was fantastic, but some people really hate that scene, um, which I think is great. I think that's fantastic that people are having those kind of reactions to it. And then after that, after that kind of bridge scene, it started, the film just starts to speed up and we start yeah. jumping ahead in time and all these slow scenes that have come before, you know, there's now scenes that last kind of in the blink of an eye rather mm. than, and, and I think that kind of sudden, um, juxtaposition of pacing is just like fascinating. Uh, but then obviously you've got the, the, the grief in the film as well. And yeah. it, and that kind of side of things and the grief from both the ghost and from Rooney Mara's character. So um, there are layers to it. I'm still discovering them now. I've seen yeah. it three times now. Wow. So yeah,
3: I think the best thing about it is that it kind of throws these big questions up about time and humans' relation to their own like, personal space, and mm-hmm. dom- the domestic space, but it doesn't really answer them. It's just about, like, you know, join us as we just look at these things, but
5: we don't actually have an answer for you. That's probably why people have had a Maybe. bad reaction yeah. to it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm drawn to those kind of films in general, yeah. um, like in- interrogative films that don't aim to to answer questions but do pose them. Because I think that's what I think that's what films supposed to do in a way. Um, we all want a kind of film that does give you answers sometimes. There's no harm in that. But I mean, I think one that keeps you thinking, like a ghost story does, and one you can keep returning to and discovering new things. I think this is gonna be a film that people look back at when, uh, when they look back at 2017, right. and, that, and this is gonna be one of those ones that stands out. I know we've got you know, things like Get Out and, and Call Me By Your Name at the moment, yeah. which are getting a lot of praise, uh, which are great films, uh, both in my top 10 of the year, but um, you know, there's a chance that they might get kind of, as people look back at this year, in 20 years, 20, 30 years time, that this yeah. might be a film that kind of, I think, rises to the top. We'll see. Brilliant. Stephen, thank mm. you. No worries. Yes.
3: Okay, next up, we're hearing from Stephen again and joined by Kelly Pell, also from Curzon and Aldgate, as they talk about The Florida Project. So both of you put The Florida Project in your top ten. Mm-hmm. Why is it in your top ten?
6: I think because it's a film that we don't see a lot mm-hmm. of anymore. I think it's a meandering film. It doesn't have a, a firm plot structure. I mean, if it did, it was hidden. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a film that gave us time to connect... With characters, put us in the world of the, you know, the lead character mm-hmm. which who's a five-year-old child um, and I think it did it very well and I think it made you feel something and it also left things up, you know, to the imagination and for you to put together and it was also about, you know, what they didn't show, a lot of things that they left out. Yeah. I think that it was a special film I think as well, you know. No, i totally agree sean with baker. that
5: yeah mm-hmm. i totally agree with everything you said i think i heard sean baker when he when he was in at the london film festival mm-hmm. say that he was looking to make the little rascals mm-hmm. but for the kind of 21st <laughs> century and that kind of meandering nature to it and that yeah. humor i think it reminds us kind of all of our childhood a little yeah. bit right how we didn't really have a definitive structure to yeah, our lives yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah.
6: exactly. Yeah. and memory and like how you know the child's sort of perspective Mm. Which is very untainted and quite optimistic, and you know yeah. it's fantastic and mystical, and I think all of those elements are present in the film as oh, well. Yeah,
5: what you said about about the film being a lot of what we what it doesn't show.
6: Yeah, to- exactly. totally agree. Because yeah. it's,
5: if you were to show the kind of things, a lot of the stuff seems to happen behind like closed doors. Mm. Um, which, as a child, like. That kind of, yeah. you know, behind closed doors yeah. and not being allowed into places was yeah. something we all kind of felt. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I think the fact that Mooney is, <laughs> is so optimistic about the world around her, yeah, mm. that it, that's why the ending hits you kind of so. Yeah,
6: hard. yeah. Exactly.
5: Yeah. Yeah,
3: and even as the world, so like if it was if the whole film was from what's the mother called? Haley. Yeah. Is it Haley? Yeah. It's so. Haley. So like if it was all from her perspective, this would be a very different film oh, because totally. you know the world around them is. It's so brightly colored, but it's as if it's been painted over, you know, as if everything needs to look pretty Mm, for the mm -hmm, tourists. mm -hmm. But really, this is quite, you know, extremely poverty stricken people we're watching. Yeah. But through the eyes of a child, those bright colors seem even brighter.
6: Yeah.
5: I think, yeah, go on, go ahead.
6: Yeah, I was just going to say that just had a thought (laughs) while we're having this. But I think it's almost like, I really love stories that are on a micro level tell very universal stories. Yeah. And so, you know, if you on a micro level, yes, we're looking at at this particular place, these particular kinds of people, you know, lower income, the, you know, it's not a, it's not a mistake they called it the Florida project cuz of uh, yeah. associations with, you know, the American projects. But I think as you were saying, like, you know, painted over for the tourists yeah. and this particular area in Orlando, you know, like yeah. for the tourists and and it's got this weird in-between sort of like, oh, we're good, we're fine, yeah. well, our economy's okay, and like everyone's doing all right right, and this yeah. jazz hands kind of thing. It's kind of the, the same thing that I think society does in general, you know, and yeah. films in particular that reiterate that kind of yeah, everything's fine and like the world is structured and we are following this narrative, yeah. you know, plot. And like, you know, it's, it's going to be a happy it's, ending. It's repression. It's you know, and it's total it. repression. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah. something like this that is exploring mm. that just in its form, it's in and of itself, it's interesting. And I think adds another layer, you know, yeah. to like look into it.
5: And I mean, what you just said about it being painted over, really, yeah. really interesting. Because I don't know how you guys found, but when I first watched it, I felt that even though I loved it, I was concerned a little bit with the kind of the the labels like poverty porn, right? you know, because this is a kind of a white kind of middle, not middle class. I don't know Sean Baker's life, but uh, (laughs) he, yeah, but, you know, he's a he's a director working in the industry now. And he's had a hit film kind of making a movie about people uh, who are incredibly poor um, Mm -hmm. and how how much of that, how much are we like reveling?
6: Well, idea. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't think that. Yeah, that now, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Mm. I think it's a valid point, but I think that his, the tenderness in which he tells the story and the and the the, the yeah. characters all have dignity and agency. Mm-hmm.
3: And exactly, and that's what he did with yeah. Tangerine as well. Yeah, yeah. Like in a film, these would be seen as, oh, their life is so hard. Look, mm. look at these people. Look how
5: yeah. poor they are, and everything. But this is for most part quite a joyous film right I'd agree I, mean, I think that that's why he kind of had to do it from Mooney's perspective from yeah. a five year old's perspective I think that's why he, not, that's why he gets away with it because that's what the film is actually about I think mm. is the idea that you know you, even though you're kind of living in poverty as a child you don't know that mm. you can still have fun you can still be happy you can still mm-hmm. live your childhood as exciting and as kind of full of joy yeah. uh, that other children do which again coming to the ending of the film when you see all that fall apart for Mooney mm. and the reality kind it of hits her. It makes it
6: even more yeah, um, impactful, I think. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Mm. Because
5: all the way through the film, she's been this confident kind of boisterous uh, young lady mm. who's kind of like in the midst of like, childhood mm. and, and, and happiness and exploring the world and all of a sudden that just all, the facade just drops away from it yeah. and it's, yeah, pretty devastating.
6: Yeah, it raises interesting questions I think. It's not saying that what um, the the mother's doing is right or wrong, it's not passing judgment on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you do see that there are elements that, you know, they there are risks and dangers to letting children, lo- like there are amazing aspects where they can create their own universe and live this fantastical yeah. world, but there are also the dangers of that, you know, and he kind of yeah. shows that um, in in both parts, but, but then it also again raises a, an argument about like what is better for a child, you mm. know, like what is society deems is okay for a kid yeah. versus like you know she's okay in this world with her mother, and like as much as the mother's struggling, she doesn't know. It's interesting.
1: Kelly, Stephen, thank you.
6: Thanks, Sam. No worries. Yes.
1: Thank you. Next up is Kate Garber, who will be talking about one of her favorites of the year, Wonder Woman.
7: And we've just had a discussion (laughs) around the table. uh, Something that Jake and Sam aren't saying here is that apparently I've picked a really uncool... No, 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 Okay, here we go, In
1: the grand scheme of of end-of-year lists, when everyone wants to pretend to their friends how cool they are, they tend not to pick blockbusters because it looks better to pick the kind of cooler indie art house films. Of course it Um, does. But, I mean, in terms of actual social impact, which is what we look for in art, isn't it? Absolutely. Wonder oh, Woman wow. this year. Cultural achievement. achievement. Yeah, Yeah, nice. Yeah. It's probably had a, a huge impact. I yeah. think
7: it's had a huge impact, I have to say. But not particularly on me, because I'm way, way too old, really, to choose Wonder Woman as my <laughs> film um, of the year, as I can still remember the series very, very well, and that's my favourite thing. Right. But um, I think people were a bit sniffy about Wonder Woman. They were yeah. like... Yeah, is it going to do the business? It has done the business. It is directed by a woman. She is going to direct another one. And I thought Gal Gadot was brilliant as Wonder Woman. I don't care that she's only wearing little hot pants or whatever they are, because that girl can fight mm. in real life as well, not just even on screen. Yeah. And I know that loads of uh, girls and women saw that mm. film and came out inspired. I came out needing a hearing test. It was loud. I will say that about the film. It's very, very loud. Yeah. And it does go on for quite a long time. But if we take those two things away, I think it is a cultural moment. And God knows we need it this year. Because mm-hmm.
1: it's not like that we haven't seen this Wonder Woman. This is actually yeah. the third time yeah. that she has appeared on our yeah. screens. But this is the only time that you've actually this is the yeah. Wonder Woman that we want to see compared to the Wonder Woman that maybe appeared in Justice League, which felt yeah. like a completely different representation of the character or the one that appeared in Batman Superman. Yeah. I think because of the the people behind the camera proved to be just as important as the characters in front of it. I agree. And that's why so many people have come out of Wonder Woman being yeah. so impressed and empowered by it.
3: This film had everything to prove. This yeah. had a real hard time being released, I remember. I remember people. People had written it off before they saw it, but it was what a surprise it was.
7: I actually think she was the best thing about Batman versus Superman. Actually. Yeah, I agree. Um, and but you know we have to talk about the sort of previous year. Was it previous year Ghostbusters? What a hard time oh, Ghostbusters yeah. got. And yeah. there it was, it was sort of ridicule across, you know, the internet about it. And I watched the film. It was perfectly fine. Yeah. Why do. You, you know, it's just like as soon as you put women behind the camera... Gets in front of the camera. Yeah. Absolutely. And the fact is that we just want to make films. Not mm. me. When I say we, I mean it's a royal <laughs> we. I do not want to make a film. That will not happen. Um, but yeah, so Wonder Woman. There you go.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Kate. And now, Kate Kane from Cousins Distribution discussing Aki Karazmaki's The Other Side of Hope and why it's her favourite film of 2017.
8: It's a film that tackles a tough subject in a humorous way. It has real humanity. It doesn't beat you over the head. And actually, even if it was about something else, it's just a pure joy to watch his films. He has such a style to the way he he shoots, and the humor that he has is very much in keeping with my own, the sort of dry, dark. He is just somebody who just makes films with a real, a real sense of humanity and a real wanting to stir emotions in a, in a in the audience but with, really without beating you over the head with it he's i think he's really intelligent and um i could watch his films all day it's a shame he doesn't make them faster because yeah. i could watch yeah. i could watch an Naki an film every year and be very very happy yeah. with my life
1: and it is, it's black comedy. It's not like a kind of a thick, tarry blackness to get bogged down. In. No. It's, re- it's actually surprisingly light. And you try and tell people what this film is yeah, about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's say, quite oh, hard. It's a comedy. You know. uh-huh. um, people are going to struggle with that.
8: They will do. But then, I mean, it, it is quite hard to sort of do. It's. I think we specialise in these kind of films, like with Ruben Osland and all these filmmakers, where it's like... It, it's one of those things where it's like you just have to hope that word of mouth is strong because... Mm there's a sushi scene in this film which just makes me laugh out loud and you can't tell anybody why it's funny because it just ruins the joke but it is like I had tears running down my face because it's just these little moments of it's like, it's a visual gag but it also works on so many other levels and he's just, I just think he's so sophisticated and and, you know, he's just, yeah, he sort of I always leave his films with a real a really sort of emotional I have to go out and have a cigarette, or have a coffee, or you know, just do that, and and just sort of take it all in because he's that's what I want from a filmmaker. I want someone that really fizzes my blood and makes me feel something, can think on a film, and then go and tell people, please go and see this film because. Um, because yeah he's a, he's one of the greatest living directors.
1: Yeah. And it, it's got a it's got kind of a slow burning gut punch right at the end mm-hmm. as well mm. which you don't really notice happening. Yeah. And then it's only as you say after you've sat on it yeah. for a bit and you've had a coffee and you've had a think and a sleep and you realize how much heart and emotion really is at the center of this yeah. film, and that's what's driving it. And obviously it's it's a film about a Syrian refugee so it should have that yeah. at the center. Yeah. Exactly. Of it. But it, you don't get to bogged down in the politics of it mm. so then once you actually think about it you can think about the politics of it yeah. and what it's trying to say and you realise how important this is
8: He's yeah, in a way he's like a sort of finished Ken Loach where he mm. he's despairs of the government and he despairs of you know, what's, what's being done to help these people and they're just sort of at a loss and there's bureaucracy and it's all just sort of box ticking and like okay well we'll help these people but they're not helping them and these people are really struggling and he sets about putting humanity... I keep saying the word humanity, but it is, like, that's what mm-hmm. he, his films are to me, and he, he sort of puts it front and centre and does it in a way. I mean, we've done films like Fire at Sea, which is the same thing, where you're just like, it's tr- it's so traumatic yeah. what happens to these people, and it's it, it's got attention, but it's still not enough attention because it's still going on and people are, you know, dying in these boats and all these kind of things, but Fire at Sea, I think, was too tough. People found it yeah. too distressing to watch, and I understand that, and we bought it because... We just thought, we have to show this film. But The Other Side of Hope manages to take a similar subject. You know, this guy has come from the most horrendous conditions and it starts with a gag. Like, you know it's a film about Syrian refugees and it starts with an amazing joke at the beginning that's just, you sort of can relax a little bit and think, well, okay, I'm not being patronized or this isn't gonna be a ninety minute lecture or something like this. It's like it's a story of a of a ma- of two men and how their lives interject and um yeah all of his films are like that. La Havre is another one, you know, he's sort of yeah, I think it's it's very smart.
3: Yeah. Is it seven years since La Havre? Was that, 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 mm. that the gap between Something thing? like that six yeah. or mm.
8: It was released just when I started here, so maybe six years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I mean it, that's what I mean. It takes yeah. a while. It's like Roy Anderson almost, right, where you're yeah. just like, Come on, just stick <laughs> a green screen on it <laughs> do another one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. And a uh, killer soundtrack as well. Yeah. Really great. The band. Very
8: it. good. They did t- when they um did the premiere in Berlin they had a party afterwards and it was as you'd expect, there was booze and smoked herrings and everybody was smoking. And their band came on and did this set and it was just brilliant. I just had the best time afterwards <laughs> and was just telling everybody about it. And like, it did, I don't know, the whole thing is everybody who worked on this film, like the sales agent and all the crew and all of that, they're just like so full of love for it. And I, and I feel the same. And actually all of us in the team just felt the same afterwards. It was just like, it's a joy, it's a treat to work in film and it's a treat to find a film like this where you just think... Oh, that's what it's all about, really, and and they don't all have to be sort of risklessly. I mean, a lot of them are, but uh, <laughs> but then the other thing is that this film actually is different to the script. So the ending was different in the script, so I had a pleasant surprise at the ending because I was prepared for something like a lot darker, and then wow. yeah, he obviously I don't know he's just decided to change the way he did it, and I think it worked.
3: And now we're joined by Ryan Hewitt, who's going to tell us about his favorite film of the year, *Good
4: Time*. Not just film comments, number one, film of the year, my number one. More film importantly, of the year. absolutely, yeah. far more important in, in the ranks. So, uh, *Good Time*, film from this year by the Safdie brothers, a couple of guys born and bred in Queens and Manhattan, New York, and that environment completely infects everything that they've made so far. They have had a couple of films before now, most notably Heaven Knows What from a couple of years ago, but Good Time is very much their I think it's going to be their calling card. It's the one that's really going to announce them to a lot more people. Mm. Well, I think they've
1: they've already springboarded into new projects yeah. as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They've
4: got Uncut Gems coming up next year, I believe, yeah. produced and then by Martin Scorsese, For remake of uh, 40 Hours. Remake yeah. of 48 yeah. Hours, yeah. Perfect film for them, I think. Definitely. Very yeah. much in the same kind of yeah. vein as Good Time. Yeah. Um, good time doesn't necessarily have uh well no good time is a lot like 48 hours actually and it's like it's it's got 24-hour period pretty much Mm. and it's madcap and all the kind of things things happen to characters rather than them necessarily going out and making things happen Mm. so um for quickly to catch up on what it's about so you've got this guy named connie played by robert pattinson like you've never seen him before (laughs) uh he is born and bred in Queens. He's very much a product of his environment, street smart and savvy kind of guy. Hasn't had a lot of breaks in life. And is a bit of a hustler, but with that comes a lot of charisma. Mm. He's, he's a bit of a manipulator. He knows how to work people. He knows how to lean on his good looks and his charm. And uh, He's desperate to get out of Queens, but he won't do that without his brother, Nick, who suffers from some learning difficulties. So He's very vulnerable in Queens, particularly in there heart of Queen's, their existence. So he hatches a plan to rob a bank, and from the proceeds of that bank robbery, they will escape, but it doesn't quite go to plan. Uh, Nick ends up in prison, and then Connie really comes to life. He kicks into survival mode, and he spends the next 24 hours doing absolutely anything necessary to rescue his brother from wherever he may be. Uh, I read someone describe
1: it as muscular filmmaking, Mm. and initially I thought... I don't actually know what that means, Um, but then looking at it, I think you're actually looking at the complete intensity and strength in vision behind it. And that's why I think that means that the Safdie brothers clearly know exactly what they want to do and they really throw their weight around with every aspect of the film making. The camera, you are so aware of it. Mm. It really throttles you, it moves around, everyone's face fills up the screen. The soundtrack is always there. It's
4: unrelenting. The performances the are at, yeah. like
1: volume 11. Yeah. Everyone yeah. is really smashing it. And I think that's what I loved about it.
4: It's, it's ferocious, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's completely unrelenting, completely uncompromised. I really like... What I really like about the Safdies, and particularly in Good Time, is that they are very much influenced by film culture. They have clearly... Like, taking in everything Scorsese's ever done everything Paul Schrader's ever done Abel Ferreira all these like key New York filmmakers but they don't seem to be just replicating it they're not just doing little nods or little winks and things like that it's a product of all of these things combined Mm. but it has it's unique they they have something unique about them and it is particularly in 2017 or, or the 20 teens to have something so aggressive yeah as what they're doing in American film is quite rare and I think that they they're just doing this like mutant hybrid of everything from the 70s the gritty Mm. New York the the 80s soundtrack feel and it's got this 90s sort of styling Mm. in the costume in particular but then it coalesces into something new and feels fresh despite being completely like referencing so much American indie scene at the minute seems to
1: be very much around the Barnbacker Kind of, yeah, yeah. like the intellectual kind yeah, of that's what it's Brownstone about. thing. Yeah, um, girls are like films of Iris yeah. Sachs, Yeah, uh, that kind of thing. And then, like even films like Judd Apatow films are a variant on that. That are just yeah. A, yeah. Bit a bit more broader. Maybe. Yeah. And then these guys just come in and completely flip that on its yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. And that, there's a reason that this film is playing at Cannes. And it's just smashing it out yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. It's, do, it's so good. I'm so pleased yeah. that, every, that we're talking about it on this show and that it is cropping up on end of year lists. Yeah. And yeah. People are watching
3: it. And there's something about a film set within a 24 hour time period that has just so much energy and so much like watchability. Um, it's kind of like you know, you're talking about the films that influenced it. Like the Warriors, yeah. I think, is a big one as well. Mm, yeah, That's what yeah. You've got to get from place A to place B yeah. stay alive. That kind of mentality yeah, exactly. to it is so, yeah, you're just so involved in it.
4: And yeah, Walter Hill's like another one of those yeah. names, isn't he? Like yeah. The Warriors and them doing 48 Hours. Right, yeah. Of all the people to remake 48 Hours, if it really has to yeah. happen, I'm glad that it's the Safety brothers. Yeah. Because they know that they seem to know that environment so well, and yeah. they seem to be quite happy to push the boundaries. Yeah. And I just
1: but want to quickly mention Robert Pattinson, because he's had a kind yeah. of a year yeah. as well. Because um, I don't know if Lost City of Z was in either of your guys' picks for the end of the year, but it certainly was for mine. And yeah. I think he's brilliant in that and he's just signed up for a Claire Denis sci-fi yeah. film as well, right. and so he's making some tremendous choices and I'm just really excited to see what he's doing. I think
3: this year we've had some really good like, A-list actors and actresses appearing in weird stuff like you Killing know, of a Sacred Deer, um, this, and then Mother. Mm. You know, I mean, they're not, they're not really comparable General, in all the way, but they're yeah. also just like, it's great that these big actors are willing to do these smaller, quirkier films.
4: But no, your point about Robert Pattinson's very, very true. For me, I was probably not prepared to accept him before this year mm. because I you know, Twilight, couldn't get over yeah. it myself. Because your the heart was light, broken Twilight thing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> how good he was in Twilight. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he can never live up to that. But this year with Lost City of Z when he showed how good he was in that smaller supporting character role and then just absolutely ran away with it in good time, uh, he, he's now one that I'll look out for, one that I'll go and see. It's an extremely impressive performance well oh, Ryan thank
1: you so much thank have you. a good time this Christmas ah. and now we must get on to the top 10 because Irene your working week the last seven days has just been compiling everyone's top 10 I saw the list there's a lot there that you had to sift through
2: yes this is kind of the, the pain and the joy of my life every <laughs> time this time of the year comes along uh, we have received lists from quite a few people a uh, very diverse group of uh, you know voices and uh experiences and interests and so it's it's fantastic that they're all represented on the Curzon blog you can read everyone's lists but I believe you have done the fiendishly
1: (laughs) terrible uh, job the the fun task of assigning every film a numerical value (laughs) upon where it appeared in everyone's (laughs) list and uh, then using those numbers to figure out the Curzon top 10 and there was a lot there was I've got a little page in front of me and it was it was one of five or six pages that were filled with lots of different films and so it was great to see such a diverse spread and uh, so i'm going to start with some honorable mentions mm-hmm. that didn't quite make the cut and uh, those are the red turtle michael duduk dwick's uh film with a collaboration between wild bunch and studio ghibli which is an almost silent kind of meditation on pretty much life itself and uh, But just sat on a little island with a red turtle. Loved it. Uh, that was in my top ten and didn't make it. Uh, we've also got Dunkirk. Didn't quite cut. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a surprise. Neither did heartbreakingly Paddington 2. Oh, I'm uh, sorry.
2: That, that is just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> can I just
1: say? Uh, I can only assume people haven't seen it. And that's why that's it didn't the make the cut. That's the error of their ways. Yeah. And uh, we just talked about it with Ryan. Good time just three places out of hitting the top 10, which is a real shame. Uh. Uh, And last year's big kind of art house hit all across Europe, Tony Erdman, two points shy of missing the top 10.
2: Such a shame.
1: And uh, we've already had a brief discussion about it. I say you have with Stephen a ghost story. The one one point, single point Ah. from breaking the top 10. All right. Um, So those are our honorable mentions. And we will start with our 10th place, which is Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women.
3: I saw this a while ago, uh, LFF 2016. Mm. So it was
1: the uh, best film of the festival there.
3: It was, yeah. No, it's a really good film, really really slow, meditative look at uh, the very different lives of three women. Um, yeah, really great film. It's one of the kind of, because I saw it so long ago, it's kind of not one I've thought about for a while. But yeah, really great. Um, was it Kristen, Kristen Stewart, Stewart, Laura, Laura Dern, Dern, Michelle Williams? yeah
1: fantastic cast yeah. um,
2: and the, there's a small part by Jared Harris which is kind of crucial yeah. in the Laura Dern yeah. episode and I thought that episode absolutely grabbed me Same. and uh, yeah. I was I was straight into the deep end with this film I loved it it's my number two of the year mm-hmm. yeah. so I'm very pleased that it made the top ten
1: Yeah. what's interesting when I was compiling this as much as I love writing down numbers and the <laughs> my second favourite thing was actually noticing that there was a lot of films that either kind of hit ten like top like number one yeah. ten points or they went one Right. Like they were kind of mm. like either someone's very favorite or they would like liked, mm. and there was a few films like that, and there are a few films that were all fives and sixes, and mm. everyone kind of agreed that these are really good, but not they're quite. not quite there. Yeah, and one of them is Certain Women, that there were that is there because it had so many number ones right. and number twos, and well yourself included. Yeah, that.
2: that's great to see. That's mm. great to see.
1: And, and now a remnant from, I would say, last year, and this is obviously a conflicting time when we're building yeah, these lists, it's Manchester by the Sea is in ninth place.
2: Yeah, Manchester by the Sea was released in January this yeah. year, so I think it's really a testament to the fact that it's endured so much in people's memory that it was so high on so many lists. Um, I found it a, an excellent uh, piece of screenwriting, uh, truly like you know, something that goes in-depth into... The mind of one character I felt a little bit ambiguous about various things that had to do with the context of the film and perhaps what we now know about its star which I think I would like to sort of take into account when I make my Top ten lists of the year, so it, for me it wasn't one of the top tens, but certainly I would like to praise the writing in it and the script, and the direction was really like yeah. supportive of that writing.
1: Yeah. Well, just despite the um, the rules that you set out for us on this task, Irina, I uh, I just didn't even think. Of Neither did I. The films, as yeah. yeah. Last year's Oscar mm. films as being this year's. Yeah, and same. Just, yeah. Like, It's stuff like festivals and like screenings that we go yeah. to that kind of mess it up for you and I, like this I saw at As You Saw Certain Women yeah. London Film Festival 2016 that is what 15 months ago now I'm not I'm not thinking of it yeah. yeah but
3: I'm very happy it's in the top 10 because yeah. it is an amazing achievement in writing
1: yeah right at number 8 we've already talked about it it's Sean Baker's The Florida Project
3: yeah me Kelly and Stephen spoke about this earlier and also uh, we have our podcast interview special with this with Willem Defoe and Sean Baker
1: yeah you had a great time on that one didn't you brilliant
2: yeah. It was a great interview. It was, he just seemed to be so nice. He was just so Willem Defoe about Dafoe. everything.
1: Oh, yeah. Willem Defoe, who is not a villain, despite the fact you told him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, my mistake, sorry. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, at number seven, Blade Runner 2049. Ooh. Cool.
3: Yeah, this was, this was like mid, mid-list for me. What a great showcase of what a blockbuster can be.
7: Well. Planning for your next trip?
1: it is the only blockbuster in the list interesting interesting yeah and um well we talked with kate during our, our brief chat about yeah that, that maybe at the end of the year sometimes people don't people want to look cool and they don't put blockbusters on their lists and maybe that's a testament to blade runner 2049 i think so yeah
3: i sorry yeah and i think this just had everything going for it as well i mean we call it a blockbuster but i think blade runner kind of transcends the label of blockbuster in a way
1: oh
0: wow that's
1: a big label (laughs) (laughs) well
3: you know i mean i think when you think of blockbuster i think i sort of think of independence day or the Avengers stuff like that but blade runner which when it was first released was a uh, commercial failure has grown to become considered a blockbuster even though it wasn't Mm. and i think that's testament to this sort of there's this huge love for it both within the industry within critics and within audiences as well
2: it's also definitely trying to grapple with some existential yeah, question that may not totally. be perhaps what the average blockbuster Would aims to do. I mean, obviously, Dunkirk was another example of this kind of blockbuster, and it's interesting that it didn't make the list. Um, Blade Runner 2049 did not make my list, I'm afraid. I did not love it. Uh I had uh, very serious trouble with its treatment of female characters, and I found it very beautifully shot. But ultimately, I thought its philosophy left me not even conflicted, but just kind of going back to A-level set texts, which is I don't know about damning. I, d- I really I, didn't get with it at all.
1: I don't think the philosophical idea at the centre of Blade Runner or Blade Runner Twenty Forty Nine is anything massive. I I think it's it's a a very nice... Every single
3: film that has ever had a robot in it has explored that philosophical question of what makes a human. Um,
1: And I think at the end of Blade Runner, there is this question that needs to be answered. Apparently, everyone needed that answered. And Blade Runner 2049 comes in, doesn't doesn't answer answer that whatsoever, and gives us something new. And that's what I really liked about it. And uh, next up, it is probably the most uh, common number one film for a lot of sites i know for sight and sound for empire Mm. here it is at number six it's jordan peele's get out brilliant Brilliant.
2: yeah i I thought get out was just a fantastic cinema experience as well as being a great film uh you really had to see it in that packed room uh where people will laugh very uncomfortably and really kind of soak in the true horror of it Mm. which is unveiled through the laughter um I don't know if Get Out is a comedy, really is. It's been classified for the Golden Globes, but there's certainly a lot of laughter in it. And uh, I just thought it was a brilliant time in the cinema and really showed you what the collective power of all people watching the same thing together can really do. And um, I guess it will have a different... um, different perception if you watch it at home I which think which is how I've seen it really and I didn't what get did to see you? it in the
1: cinema oh. and because uh, I can actually mm. imagine this yeah. particular moment yeah. there was a moment with a police car yes. which I imagine in the screens must have been yeah. absolutely there was a lot unwanted. of shouting at the screen yeah. yeah
2: Yeah, and literally people jumping in their seats yeah. you yeah. know so it was really everything that cinema can do turned yeah. up to 11 and it was so intelligently written as well with some great great performances by everyone involved yeah. And I, I found uh, my, my great hero, Josh Lyman from the West Wing, <laughs> also known as the actor Bradley Whitford, uh, who plays this really like creepy, horrible, uh, racist surgeon. Yeah. Uh, and he was absolutely fantastic because I kind of I went into the film thinking, oh, you're Josh Lyman, I will always love you. And then I thought, oh, God, someone killed this dude. <laughs> He's horrid.
3: This was my number two film of the year. Yeah. I loved it. Um, I really love horror films and... We don't often get to talk about horror films on the podcast. Um, the other one we did this year was It Comes at Night, which was on my list. Shopper. And and personal Shopper. And Raw. Personal Shopper and Raw, yeah. Oh, we did talk about loads of horror films. Yeah. Lots of horror. Um, but I'm really happy to see that this has made the impact that it has, both with critics and audiences as well. Like audiences of people that don't necessarily love cinema like we do, really like this film. And the fact that... And also you said, like, it's made the top... is number one of Empire and Sight and Sound have very different kind of approaches to film.
2: It's got one of the best opening scenes that I've seen this year, yeah. really, when uh, kind of, there's this guy walking around this neighbourhood and suddenly a song is playing and because of the context of that song and where it's come from and now suddenly it's playing in the yeah. dark mm. as he's clearly being followed by somebody. It just set the tone in a way that I think yeah. was superb and really just extraordinary filmmaking.
1: Yeah. And I think a uh, lot of credit has to go to Jordan Peele oh yeah for this it's a phenomenal concept yeah um, and executed so well he's come out and he's called it a, a social comedy mm-hmm. yeah which I think is a, a lovely
3: nice, way of putting yeah. it and I was at uh, work the other day and I was wearing a, uh, a turtleneck and someone told me oh you look like one of the people at the um, the auction in Get Out did you uh, burn the so turtleneck. I thrown the
1: turtleneck <laughs> away <laughs> good <laughs> right in fifth place uh actually kind of dividing up audience this is one of the ones that uh hit a lot of highs and a lot of lows on this it's the killing of a sacred deer yorgos Mm. Lanthimos' follow-up to the lobster and uh, i can see why a lot of people have really gone for this it's such a complete vision it's got such a unique voice and i think people that really love that are really really going strong for this because this is very this is kind of unfiltered lanthimos yeah
3: it gets a lot of love, and I think people, yeah, they do love that kind of, the sort of awkward, com- this sort of nervous comedy that you you can feel when you watch a Lanthimos film. It's like, should, should is this should I be finding this funny? Should I be laughing at this? Mm. It's that kind of tension that I think people really like.
2: There's a lot of technical mastery in the film as well, just some extraordinary long takes and long shots as well. You know, when you're sort of kind of very removed from the action, and the action kind of gets closer to you by gradually approaching, very yeah. very slowly, and really the way the tension is. Ramped up through throughout the film is excellent. Mm. Uh, I wish I wish it had ended a bit sooner than it <laughs> did. Uh, that's kind of my big qualm with the film. But it's uh, it's certainly someone you know a film that's gonna be in a lot of top ten.
1: Yeah. All right. Fourth place, and I've got to say I, I would happily see this one higher. God's Own Country. Yeah. I really really love this film. Um, and we, we spoke to Francis Lee and Alex Corriani about it, who were the nicest guys um, like all through the year since this debuted at Berlin. Like the team behind it have been so thrilled by everyone. Every audience has been so excited by it. It's gone to America and it keeps expanding theaters and it keeps going. And I think it had a run at Soho that was about nine weeks. People were just flocking to see this film about okay. oh, yeah. very
2: good, flocking. My, one of my favourite things about God's Own Country was really just watching it roll into this massive success to the point that people on Twitter were writing not just fan fiction, but kind of an alternative sequel, you know, <laughs> where the guys kind of, uh, you know, live happily ever after, but do all of the things that kind of we imagine the countryside to be like. So mm. they set up their uh, cheese business that gets picked up by Liberty, and then they, they set up a kind of uh, sweater business with the oh,
1: lambs. The sweater's become a meme in itself. It like there's a little shop near where they shot it that's like been taking orders of this one jumper. Oh, that's but because so good. they... Like They were committed to that, in a kind of um, dogmary way, that every bit of material, every mm. prop, every costume would have to come from a shop that they would have access to. And there was this one red jumper that's, that everyone wants it.
2: That's amazing. I, I actually can't wait to see Francis Lee's next film because I think his voice really came across so fresh and so interesting throughout God's Own Country. So I really wish him all the best. And I please, please, please make your film fast because I yeah. want to see what's coming from <laughs> you this, next. And
3: like, this completely stormed the biffers didn't it? yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, next up it's Call Me By Your Name
2: oh, wow. brilliant Brilliant. Yeah. so what are we number three now yeah
1: The Bronze on the podium on and the podium. I've got to say in terms of the point system that is our biggest gap from, what, from four right, to three from four to three like these top three are yeah. far ahead okay. of the others
2: yeah Call Me By Your Name appears on many many lists that I've looked yeah. at this year I think with Reason it's just one of those films that kind of grabs you by the heart and doesn't let you go, and so much in it is about, I guess, relating to the idea of what it's like to fall in love for the first time, mm. regardless of who or what the object of your affection is. Uh, but those emotions are just explored in such a deep and articulate way in the film. We've talked a lot about it in our um, episode about this particular title, and it was oh, just did, on a wonderful episode. Did someone say the most, most
1: listened to episode? Was, most was listened that, to. Was that yeah. me and me and Irena Move about over, Louis Theroux.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so it's it's really wonderful to see it do so well. Yeah. Um, it's certainly got awards uh, tips all over the place. Definitely, I yeah. am heartbroken that Michael Sturbarg has not been nominated. Yes. I think he's for, not going to be, yeah. This is
1: heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Is,
3: he has the scene. Yeah.
2: Mm. He has scene, and he's also doing exactly what a best supporting yeah. actor should do, which is definitely. to support everyone yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, plus, as a kind of role model and general you know, fantasy teacher, may supersede Indiana Jones in my wildest <laughs> dreams.
3: I think there's also... Uh, Tim- Timothy Chalamet, though, definitely has a shout for best actor. Yeah. Um, not just nomination, I think even a win is on the cards, potentially. Oh. Um, there's just something... There's a, there's a sort of physicality of his performance as well that's not really spoken about enough, I think. Like when he's kind of, the, their first scene together, he's doing like this weird like sort of climbing on his body because mm. like he sort of doesn't mm-hmm. know what to do with his body because it's the first time he's used it in this way. And there's well, something really well, nice I, about this that.
1: Was, I talked to um, Luca Guadagnino about the film mm. and we, we spoke about how people are, in, are actually enjoying each other's physicality. Yeah. Uh, the the sex in the film is fun and it looks yeah. like pleasurable, not in the sense of like like ethereal, over the top pleasure. Like this, is, they're actually just enjoying themselves, and they're young. And why shouldn't yeah. they be? And you actually think, why do we not see that enough mm-hmm. when people yeah. are actually having sex?
3: Sexing is usually very slow and sensual and careful. This is just yeah. Yeah. messy and people fall over and people, yeah that's
1: it and but like,
2: also laugh they laugh a lot yeah. with yeah, each other yeah. which is so nice and refreshing to see because it's not such a serious business after all mm. if you think about what's yeah. going on yeah, yeah.
1: You're, i'm so pleased that um maybe there are young people that might be worried about those kind of things watching yeah. the film and it will ease their minds a bit particularly about their sexuality and they look at um timothy chalamet's character And you see that that this is not an issue. You don't need Mm. to worry about this. And that's what I love about it. And also he's flying the flag for pale, skinny guys (laughs) taking their shirts off (laughs) over summer. And I'm all for that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There's also that fantastic uh, scene on the final credits of the film, which is basically a close-up of his face as he sort of allows himself to cry. And I thought that was just extraordinary. Uh, criminally, I was in a cinema where the lights were turned up oh. for that moment. And I, I just, I was still completely mesmerized by oh. it. I thought his performance was so intense. Yeah. And really, kind of, for me, I, I talked about this in the podcast. I read the novel before watching the film. And I did not like the voice, the narrative voice of the uh, protagonist. It was just right. too much of it. And it was very. Um, it felt really confused as to whether this was a 30-something telling me the story of a 15-year-old or a 15-year-old experiencing what he was experiencing. And somehow Chalamet's performance really taps into that teenage thing where you're kind of, you think you're older than you are and you act like that, but then inside there's this uncertainty and insecurity and also this kind of deep passion and everything that's going on in his mind is projected through this wonderfully yeah. specific and detailed performance. So I, I will be flying the flag for him because yeah. I think he's great.
1: Yeah. And that leads us to number two in our list, Silver, The Handmaiden.
2: Oh, fantastic. Well done. He's <laughs> <laughs>
3: my number one. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really glad to see it that high. Um, actually, this was one I saw at LFF last year, but it must have just had that much effect on me that it stayed with me for over a year to be my number one film.
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it ended up on, it was on my list, it wasn't kind of yeah. as high as yours, but maybe it was a slightly delayed release, did it release in April or May? April, yeah. yeah. April, so maybe a bit more lingering, but I think it's because com- it doesn't get that kind of Oscar coverage. No. Like, as soon as those awards happen, you kind of switch yeah. off and uh, forget about those things.
3: Yeah.
2: It is really criminal that The Handmaiden hasn't had the the Oscars Uh, sort of all over it because it is that kind of film. It's sumptuous. It's perfectly constructed in terms of its narrative and the way the story develops and is told. You constantly have these kind of twists and shifts of perspective which are endlessly gripping. And it's a film that you can watch over and over again and appreciate just the depth of it. Plus, the production values of it, I mean the costumes yeah. are wonderful, yeah. the cars in it are extraordinary, the props are so memorable, I will never forget the appearance of a stuffed snake, <laughs> <laughs> for obvious reasons I'm terrified of snakes, Oh, did I say F, <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, see that's what snakes do to me um, but uh, it's just so visually luscious and sensual and yeah. fun, it's, it's yeah. really a wild ride Yeah.
1: again when yeah. I read the description of it and then I didn't see it at LFF like you did and I was really surprised when you came out and just said how much fun it was yeah it really it wasn't kind of sold to me initially in that way it was very much a this is a taut yeah. erotic thriller and, that's uh, nearly three hours long yeah
3: um yeah I, I, I didn't expect much going in I have to be honest um but it really bowled me away um and so, sorry, sorry I was going to say like I kind of struggled with making these top 10 year lists cause like Is it something that really entertained me that goes on the list or something I really admired in terms of filmmaking? Like, I've got Logan on my list, but that's hardly the most impressive filmmaking this year. But I just really enjoyed it. So I thought Handmaiden, you know, balanced those two things perfectly for me. Like, it is a kind of It's a genre film, Mm. and it has genre cliches in it, like the twists and turns. A lot of people think there's too many of them I've spoken to, but But I think...
1: that's it. Like, this kind of deconstruction of the gothic that it is so clever. Like, it really goes right into the history of... I Credit to Sarah Waters' novel as well. Yeah, of course. But, like, this is reaching in, like, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, into, like, the Bluebeard story and the kind of early gothic novels, your post-war Hitchcock films as well and different eras of how this story has been told, and it's lifting from each one. Sometimes it's leaning into the cliché, sometimes it's deconstructing it. All the way through, it's just supremely entertaining, because you're constantly on your toes trying to figure out how it's going to tell the story.
3: Yeah, and I have heard some criticism that the sex scenes are seen by some as kind of male gazy. but I've also read another thing where it's they're performing to each other in those sex scenes, which is a really nice way of looking at it, I think.
2: It's funny because I I was going to say something about uh, you know we were talking about the two male protagonists of Call Me By Your Name and God's Own Country and how comfortable they end up being with each other's bodies and I think this is very similar in The Handmaid and I do think it comes down to the fact that it's a story written by a woman and from a woman's point of view and then To me, the addition of a male director Mm. who is actually working in a very, very stylized manner uh, really does go a long way not to sort of project that kind of male gaziness to it. The the scenes are not pornographic, I would say. They're incredibly erotic and very sexy, but they are performed in this way where the characters are discovering each other And that there is something about the staginess that I think is very much connected to those tropes in the novel. Um and you know, for instance this I found was very different in films like Blue is the warmest colour, where yeah. there there is some seriously problematic frame as to what where the sexuality is represented and how. But in The Handmaiden I really felt that that kind of stylization yeah. And the staginess of it and the, the knowing staginess for everyone involved really did remove that mm. for me.
1: Right, so we must move on to our number one film of the year, as compiled by cousin staff members from across the country.
2: Ooh.
1: And in very boring fashion. It's the winner of the Academy Award for Best Picture. It's Moonlight. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. That's, that's interesting. It's not on
3: my list, but I mean, it would be if we did these lists at a different time. It's just that <laughs> it really feels like last year's film. And I know that, as you say, people have different the personal rules if what you think. I mean, it was released in the UK this year, so it absolutely has the right to be there. But uh, it didn't make mine. But I'm very happy. It's a worthy number one. So but,
2: uh, it is on my list. Yeah. It's my number one film oh, of the year. Oh, cool, Okay. Um. I did see this film in November last year, and I have subsequently seen it three times. Uh, it's stayed with me in a way no other film has this year. Uh, it's, it's doing so many of the other things that all the films that we spoke about are doing. It's got this kind of fantastic uh, stylization of the way it presents this world that it operates in. It finds poetry and beauty in places that are downtrodden and miserable because there are humans there and there are people who are going through experiences that make them grow up and change and find themselves and find each other. Mm. It's an incredibly hopeful film. The music in it is wonderful. Uh, yeah. My my most played album of the year on mm-hmm. Spotify yeah. is Hamilton the Musical. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> number two is Moonlight. <laughs> well, well, uh, no, which... so Moonlight, I, I have listened to uh, an awful lot. I'm sure... I have oh, as yeah. well It's, uh, it, it's really just everyone the is
1: It's wonderful music yeah. And um, some of the remixes That Barry Jenkins Has been putting on Twitter yeah. and Yes ones, Everything There's, He's so, so good On Twitter as well yeah. Actually, Barry Jenkins <laughs> Is great <laughs> is? Yeah. Yes
2: yeah. And uh, I think it's uh, It's it's honestly It was a combination of Again, great writing By um, Terrell McCraney uh, Who is an extraordinarily Playwright. One of his uh, plays will be performing at the Young Vic in oh. January. It's oh, called great. The Brother's Size. I've got tickets for it. He's just someone I really just want to hear stories from. Um, and uh, his meeting with Barry Jenkins was truly just a yeah. meeting of titans. Uh, so it's very exciting. And I think it's a film that people will be returning to over and over and over again.
3: Mm. Um, I have a fun, weird fact. So I interviewed Terrell Alvin McCraney. The first thing he said to me when I walked in the room was... Oh, I like your socks, and by chance of fate, I am wearing those socks right now. Oh wow! What are they? They are that sort of oh,
2: moonlight color socks. is great radio. Isn't it? Live radio. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: mean, I don't have the sort of uh, aqua blue or sort of a turquoisey. Yeah. Yeah. But they're very moonlight. I think. Yeah, with the posters. The color scheme. Yeah.
1: Very very nice. Well, as a as a special treat, I think we should uh, replay that very interview to end today's show what do we think about that yeah yeah, it was. It. let's bring it one back one of my favourite interviews I've done yeah. So, yeah. alright um, so that is the end of the Curzon uh, the Film Podcast for 2017 we're ending on a high by declaring in a shock twist <laughs> that Moonlight <laughs> is the best film of this year it's
3: just a shame it lost to La La Land yeah, for it the is. best picture
1: yeah. yeah what a shame alright well until 2018 we will leave you with Taryl Alvin McCraney and Sam Howlett. Until then, it's bye-bye from me, it's bye-bye from Sam Howlett. <laughs> Goodbye. And it's bye-bye from Irena. Goodbye. Have a very, very lovely Christmas.
3: Okay, and we're delighted to be joined by Tarrell Alvin McCraney. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So congratulations on the film, and its uh, incredible reaction and reception, uh, and all the awards it's been nominated for. Uh, but something that's kind of caught my attention is that so last weekend at the BAFTAs it was nominated for best original screenplay, and then at the Oscars, it's best adapted screenplay. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe sort of um, explain the origins of the film and maybe give some context to that sort of discrepancy in the awards and how it's recognized?
0: Well, sure. I mean, I'll deal with the easiest first, um, which is the discrepancy, quote-unquote. You know, uh, the academies, both BAFTA and the Academy Awards, are... Private institutions, and so they have certain scriptures that they uh, or precepts that they place on these categories. And yeah. you know, in one place we we fit the bill in in, a, in one way, in another place we fit in the total opposite. So, to me, it's um you know it's it, it's it's their party, so we sort of sure. just show up and say thank you either <laughs> way. Um and and so that's that's how that works. Yeah. The way in which the the script became moonlight. Is a little bit of a complicated story, which I don't I don't mind telling. It it feels so uh, it's stranger than fiction. Actually, <laughs> it's um, um, the I wrote in Moonlight. Black boys look blue uh, yeah. as a kind of filmic uh, uh, meditation on my life in Liberty City. Uh, my mother just died from age related complications. Uh, I had just graduated from undergrad. And I kind of didn't know where my life was going, um, and I was really Terrified that I wasn't going to be able to put some very strong memories together. Again, um, you know, you forget things, but you often think, okay, well, my mom or my dad will remember it for me. Um, And so with her gone, I felt like, wow, there was going to be so much that I just didn't retain. So I just really eagerly wanted to put things down and and wrestle with um, this question of, you know, who who were the most important people to me and my quote-unquote role models and who, what, I was looking at a life as a, as a performer, as an artist, as an actor at the time, but you know, why didn't I become a drug dealer? One of the most uh, influential people in my life, uh, especially from a young age was a drug dealer. And you know, what would my life look like if I had gone down that road, which was an invitation that I had gotten often growing up in Liberty city. So I put those, I put that down and put it down in like 60 or 70 pages or less. Um, and, uh, and then tried to move on with my life and continue writing plays. And, um, and so I had this script called Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue. And my friend Andrea, Andrew Hevia, who is a co-producer of Moonlight the film, but also he runs a, P, uh, a company called Borst Film Festival Film Company in Miami, which is dedicated to like, getting Miami artists yeah. to create films. Um, they were working with Barry Jenkins. And uh, Barry had created this film called uh, Medicine for Melancholy in San Francisco. And they were like, well look, how do you, <laughs> how do we get you to create um, something as beautiful as uh, medicine in Miami? Because you're from Miami, you were born and raised there. Now I had never met Barry and I didn't know really who he was, I knew, yeah. I knew of his work. Um, and then um, Andrew gave uh, Barry in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue. Um, and then that's how we began to have a conversation about yeah. Growing up three blocks from each blocks away yeah. from each other, living literally in the same neighborhood, both having mothers who struggled with addiction, which is you know which was in the piece. Yeah. Um, Barry took that script and then rewrote it specifically to shoot mm-hmm. Moonlight, and that's how we got here. Wow.
3: Okay. So you mentioned the word there, like meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you s- see writing the the play and this the film as a kind of, sort of therapeutic or kind of cathartic and sort of um, exploring your past life in
0: a way? Um. I wish. I wish it felt like <laughs> a, a cathartic feeling. It fe- it does feel like exercising in that you are doing something about uh, the ephemeral. Okay. Um, you're doing something physical that is that is uh, that is about things that are intangible however you know at the end of it you you think of catharsis and you think ah something's gotten out yeah. and that that's not how this feels it no. feels like i've gotten something down right. it feels like i've been able to pin down a ghost or an apparition that yeah. had been floating around and we finally got a photograph of it so there's proof hmm. right that it exists um but um yeah there there's something meditative about that but does it give you a sort of uh peace i don't know
3: okay there's still things to work on, I guess. And
0: always, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's always something to work on.
3: Um, so, and how was it giving something so personal to you to someone else like, to say, "Look, take this, do what you want with it"? Kind of in a way. I mean, is that kind of difficult?
0: So um, you know, in two in two parts uh, is the answer to that question. Because in the in the original uh, conference or conversation between Barry and I. It wasn't very difficult because Barry has and had a lexicon, even without, I mean, again, I didn't know all of the things that we shared yeah. um, right off the bat, but because of the way he talked about the piece in such a very direct and poignant way, and again, if he, if he grew up in that neighborhood yeah. and during that time, there was no way, and possessing the, the talents that he had, there was no way he couldn't. Yeah. Bring you know the kind of verisimilitude and quality to it that it just you couldn't it's impossible right. it's so specific you know it's so it's so um, it's so uh, Miami in that way um, and so I had no there was no doubt in my mind that he knew he knew that world and understood it yeah. um, and then uh, you know he kept inviting me to set and in that place I didn't trust myself and not because I thought he or the actors wouldn't do and wouldn't do justice to the script. But when something's that personal and you see it happening again, you 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 can't help but just want to get in involved and sort of make it so. And then and also the actors would have the actors and maybe even Barry would have been looking to me to mm-hmm. kind of verify and check off like, "Oh yeah, that's how it went." Yeah. And 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 that's that's not important at that moment. Yeah. In that moment, what's more important is that they they're bringing their most true selves to it which is why we have such an incredible, beautiful film. On yeah. um, that, you know, these artists really knew what they were doing, down to the cinematographer, up to the grips. I mean, these are people who are professionals and deserve all the sort of accolades they got because they did the work. Um, and they didn't just sort of you know, turn around and go, hey, is this exactly like yeah. it was? And so, um, so for me, the trust came in going, knowing myself well enough to go, that it's too personal to watch these scenes be yeah. played out. Stay the F home you know yeah. and let them do their job
3: and i understand they filmed in in liberty city itself mm. and so you said then that you kind of tried to stay away from that as much as you could
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. i stayed away yeah. there was no try i'd stayed oh, away you, you went on set at all no right. i went to barry's office maybe two or three times yeah. and they were literally around the corner from my house okay so i would go around there and say hey yeah. how you doing and any, yeah. anything i can do or you know they had a casting call once and i or they had a location problem at some point and they needed a, an elementary school, so I called you know, people that I knew yeah. and, and sort of got them set up in, in ways that I could. But, you know, we, <laughs> we uh, it was better that I was not on anybody's set.
3: And so, um, if the film had been given to someone, a director who hadn't, you know, hadn't had Barry's background or mm-hmm. similar background to you, would you have been even more hesitant
0: the, there, it just wouldn't have happened. Okay. I mean there were directors who came in before right uh, and friend or friends of mine who came in before who wanted to you know produce it and they would say things like let's do it in Chicago mm-hmm. or you know we can totally you know make the we can extend this into a revenge film or something like that yeah. and and you know my answer was always no, nah, that's okay. <laughs> you know I, I'm busy I have other things to do but but thank you. Yeah. You know. And so the reason the reason it became easy and the reason it happened was because when Barry said those things, it all made sense and there was like an easy yes. Yeah. You know? A quick and easy yes. There was no need to have to go, wait, what? Yeah. You know. It's, it's your thing. Yeah. I mean it yeah. just made sense. It just made a qualitative sense that, that didn't take long to think about. Whereas there have been times where people had brought suggestions for it before and I was just like, hm, yeah. This yeah, isn't man. right.
3: So having having seen the film now, mm-hmm. and I assume you you spent time with the actors, and mm-hmm. that sense, is it strange being around some of them, like yeah. Marshall Ali, for example, because he plays the uh, basis sort of the drug dealer that you knew growing mm-hmm. up? Yeah, is it weird being around him every now and then? Like?
0: Um, it's not weird being around him. I do remember the first time I saw the film, and I was with him. You know, I sort of, I sort of started crying, and and <laughs> sort of, and he had to kind of pick me up. Um, and I think that, mo- and in that moment, I just was really grateful to him, yeah. as I am to Naomi Harris, as I am to you know Trevante and Andre Holland, who is a dear friend of mine, and um, you know has been in every one of my plays. They just to be able to find people who, and again, I don't know if you know the budget of the film, but it's not like we, you yeah. know, they're not paying these actors yeah, a whole great deal of money, and sure. you know they're, we're not putting them up at the Ritz Carlton when yeah. they're down there. They, they you were just literally taking time off of you know bond films and and you know netflix smash hits and to come down and make this 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 piece of poetry um and but with such skill um, that, that's the thing that I can't get over. They, none of them shirked on it because, you know, it was a, 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 a lower-end budget. Yeah. None of them shirked on the, the amount of talent that they brought forward. And even Barry, you know, Barry could have easily been like, oh, you know, it's a little thing that we're making. Yeah. Put his full self in it. Sure. Same with James, same with Adela. I mean, A24, they sort of just yeah. brought as much of themselves to it as possible. And I think, you know, you can't be anything but grateful to something like yeah. that.
3: I know you weren't on set, but how were the, the, um, the people of Liberty City with this film going on? Were they okay with it, or were they were helpful? They I mean,
0: there was, you know, there was a trepidation in the beginning, I think, um, from the neighborhood, and not because of the film's subject matter, but because more often than not, when someone comes to film inside Liberty City, they're doing either a newsreel about yeah. you know, the violence or yeah. the poverty, um, or they're doing a TV show called First 48, or Cops. Right. Which takes place normally in, you know, poor neighborhoods. And you see, you know, see cameras chasing after a police who is chasing after somebody who's, you know, yeah. committed a crime. And so after a while, you get tired of people just showing that about your yeah. neighborhood. But eventually, you know, Barry really worked to become, you know, in back ingrained into the neighborhood that he'd grown up in, that we'd grown up in. And, um, and eventually, you know, people, I remember we walked there the other day because we were just, you know, taking pictures in general. Um, walking by my aunt's house and someone, you know, <laughs> my cousin rode by and he was like, hey, you're in the neighborhood. Come by the house. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be back there soon. He's like, yeah. What are y'all doing? You shooting moonlight too? And I was like, no, no, we're not shooting moonlight too. But it was just one of those moments where like the, neighbor, the neighborhood has, has gotten to a point where they're like, this is yeah. our thing now. Yeah. So... You know, my cousin's gonna tell me to come by the house in the middle of a shoot. He's like, he doesn't care. He's like, yeah. I don't care if you're shooting. You need to come by the house and say <laughs> hi. And then two, um, you know, they're they're like, yeah, you know, well, you must be doing the sequel to Moonlight because you know we yeah. know you shot here and it's it's just ingrained now. So I think I think they're pretty proud of it.
3: Yeah, a sense of pride in the community. Yeah, that's good. Okay, um, and I mean, over the past few years, the conversation about representations sort of. Uh, black experience in film, the gay experience in film, have become more and more important, Mm. as, you know, people are seeing it's an underrepresented uh, experience in film. Uh, And do you think the reception Moonlight's had is a sign of moving forward, progression in a way?
0: We can only hope. I mean, uh, I'm always sort of trepidatious in terms of figuring out waves of things. I, I think it's important that when we talk about um, representation, that we can't have flash in the pan moments, Yeah, right? Because, for example, I, I was sort of sitting here or earlier, I think, figuring out uh, how I've seen so many films about coming of age. So I think there's a film called "The De- uh, My Brother the Devil, right. uh, which deals with you know a Muslim family and uh, a, a young man who's struggling with his sexuality who was in gangs in East London, I think. Yeah. And it, it's just sort of a beautiful film uh, but that I've seen yeah. <laughs> and I'm like but I don't know if a lot of other people yeah. have seen it, and so these these sort of lulls that happen in terms of um identity people like people's identity in terms of color in terms of poverty in terms of sexuality um happen and it's it's weird to me and and if 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 moonlight can help us not have those lulls, that's mm. great um but I don't. It, it certainly wasn't created to no, sure. to pass that up. It to was, avoid tokenism. Yeah it, was, yeah, it was. It was created to to tell a very intimate story about you know two young men's life yeah, in sure. this community. Um, but I, you know, you can always hope. You sort of hope that okay, yeah. great, somebody will also tell a story of a young girl, you know, struggling to. To figure out her life in you know abject poverty in some other part of the world, and that will yeah. you know it'll have, and that it'll have a, plat, a platform, hopefully, because you know we we see now that people are eager and or at least hungry to see those stories.
3: Yeah, and obviously you're from a, a theatre background. Mm-hmm. Would you like to do Moonlight as a produced play? On no, stage? no, Mm-mm. it's done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: okay yeah often I mean I never it never was ever going to be a play right, okay. it was always written I mean it, it's written so differently than anything I've ever written it literally yeah. says interior exterior right, okay. and like you know I don't know how I mean I don't know how I would get anybody <laughs> to, to do it one and two it's just so beautiful as a film why yeah sure you know
3: okay and uh, so what have you got planned next What's next on your agenda well
0: currently I don't yeah. know if it's next but current like concurrently as this is happening I'm uh, looking through applications for you know uh, choosing the next class for my for my program right. at, at the the drama school um, and that so I'm looking reading lots of applications and you know reaching out to students in that way okay. sort of figuring out what the, what our year together would be like yeah. and then um yeah. That's taking a lot. That and talking about moonlight is taking yeah, up sure. a lot of my time. <laughs>
3: okay, and uh, I've, I've, I understand you were sort of brought under the wing of August Wilson. Mm. Um, I was wondering, have you seen Fences yet? Yeah, I think have. The, yeah, I they did it a good job. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, to share. I think you know, it's interesting. I, uh, it was really great to hear Denzel Washington talk about um, talk about Barry and Barry Jenkins and the way he created that film. Um, and, I, and I really loved that because that's one, of the, that's one of the things that August was so great at. August was really great about looking at younger talent and, and sort of, not even necessarily taking them under the, his wing, but just being an advocate, saying, hey, you should go see this person's work. They're a young artist, you know? And so he, the whole cast of Radio Golf, which was working at, um, the, at school where we were, he would just be like, oh, Terrell has a play. You should go see Terrell's play. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of, it was kind of incredible. I'll tell you a funny story that I don't often tell, which is that he brought me my first iPod. Right. Okay. Did you know this? I didn't know this. Didn't. All right. So, um, I was his assistant and I was a very bad assistant. I was not very good at all. Um, <laughs> cause I'm, I can't even assist my own life. Like they even now, I was like, I would be a terrible assistant. Yeah. Um, so, but I was his assistant nonetheless. And he, he sort of called me up and he said, Hey, I need you to go buy my daughter an iPod for her birthday. Um, it's coming up and I need an iPod One of those new fancy iPods And I was like, well, I don't have iPods so I don't know how that works He's like, well, just go I need you to go buy the best one And so New Haven is like Oxford In that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's out somewhere in the, you know And uh, there's Oxford and then there's the Shire around it But there's no, like, iPod store at this yeah. time That The nearest Apple store was in New York City So I would either have to get on a train or go to Best Buy And I get in this car and I drive all the way out to Orange and I get and I like he gives me this wallet f- this envelope full of like hundred dollar bills. And I'm like, only old people do <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and so I get this this big pack of money and I yeah. go out and I say, I need the most expensive warranty guaranteed iPod yeah. you have because I'm pissed at this point. I'm missing class to go get this damn iPod. So I go get it. And I come back and I'm like, "Here's your iPod." And then I leave. I just give it to him and I go back to class because I'm late. And so he calls me back and he's like, "I need you to sit down." So he sits down and he's like, "Okay, uh, you always need music whenever you write." And he gives me the iPod. Wow. Yeah, wow. He he tricked me into buying my yeah. own iPod. <laughs> and he, I was I never forget that because he you know he's just like that. He just he 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 always wants you to to get to. To go, there's got to be a story towards it. There's got to be a journey towards it. Just can't be kind of there. Yeah. He always, you always with him, you needed to understand the journey. Um, so he, you know, Andre Holland, who's in Moonlight, is in Jitney right now on Broadway, yeah. which is extraordinary. It's my favorite play, period, right. um, but also my favorite August Wilson play. Um, and then Fences, I thought, was extraordinary. I thought yeah. the performances in Fences were extraordinary.
3: Incredible. story. Yeah. Uh, Terrell, thank you so much. Oh for no, no, thank you. I'm sure I went way longer than I was supposed to.